0: Father, thank you for the body and the blood of our Savior. I thank you that we have total and complete access into the throne room of heaven because of the blood. I thank you, Jesus, for your blood and how it has washed us of our sins and cleansed us. I thank you that you have paid the purchase price. You've paid the penalty. And you've given us life because of your willingness to die for us. Holy Spirit, stir our hearts and our minds that we would never lose sight of the amazing work of our Savior saving us from hell thank you for this time of fellowshipping around communion in Christ's name Amen as we return to Mark today we're coming to a very remarkable story and as the children go downstairs, <laughs> wow, there's a lot of them. We need to remember that these things that Christ has given to us are so real. Friday, I, I took Cody Negri to a pastor's conference. And that conference was all about expository preaching. And on the one hand, it was a day with Cody. And if you know Cody, it was just... (laughs) I love him. He's so full of Jesus, man. He's just, it's amazing. On our way home, we were talking about a variety of different things. I was giving him some, you know, theology tests and stuff. He didn't know that, but... He he did okay, Sharissa. <laughs> and at one point I was telling him, you know, the deepest thing I can think of, that it just it's just such a passion of mine, is that this group of people, this thing that we call First Baptist Church, that the people who are a part of this part of the body of Christ would just catch fire. Yeah. Yeah. Just every every one of you just blat up. Chief Andrews was in the first service, and I even said, you know, we've got the fire chief here, so it'll be okay. (laughs) This maybe isn't like the the most, wow, stand up and cheer kind of place in scripture, but God is so big and so real, and what we have is truth, and we are surrounded by this this society that doesn't want anything to do with truth. We have truth. Truth. We've got the word of God. He has revealed himself in such an amazing way. We've got truth. So the passion of my heart is that all of you just, it's just like spontaneous combustion. Everywhere you go, you represent the kingdom of God. You've got truth. It is so amazing to be a part of the body of Christ at this time. There's a lot of neat things happening, and we're, we've, we've talked about Wednesday night. We're going to show you some of Wednesday night later, but you should have been here. This place was rocking. And some of you were here, and you know what I mean. This place was crazy. Kids coming to Christ, people getting baptized. There isn't anything better than that than just going to heaven. Let's be about the things of God's kingdom. And this, this idea of us just being so excited about the kingdom of God relates to where we're at in this story because this is really remarkable. And it's remarkable on a on a variety of different planes. And they relate to what's been happening with FBC. Let's start Mark 10. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's really very remarkable. Most of the places I read and scholars believe that Jesus is on a journey and this would be his last journey to Jerusalem. So really this is, Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the last time. He's going to Jerusalem to die. So that's the time frame. Matthew's version tells us that this was a young man. And that young man, the word there, it means... Nothing older than 40, and I'm pretty convinced this guy was probably nowhere near 40. It's remarkable. Luke tells us that he was a ruler, and that probably means a leader of a synagogue. And all three, three Gospels describe him as extremely wealthy. He would have been well-known and respected in the community. So we've got this young man. He's wealthy. He's got a lot of property. So you you know that someplace the pastor's going to get in some messages about money. Yeah, what's that? (laughs) So yes, I am going to speak about money. But really, the remarkable thing about this passage is not so much about money, but about the heart. There's so many things about this that are incredibly remarkable. It starts off with something, really, you just wouldn't see. This man, this ruler, this young man, runs to Jesus, it says. That's remarkable because people in that culture, in that society, they did not run. You especially did not run if there were other people around. And the reason that this is remarkable is that if you were going to run... Male or female, you'd have to take your robe, kind of outfit that they wore, and you'd have to gather it all together and either tuck it in or hold on to it, or that thing's going to tangle in your feet and you're going to face plant. So that's remarkable because he runs. The other thing about running that would have been crude is because if you do that, you hike that robe up, you expose your legs, and you did not expose your legs in that culture. That was considered verboten, to use a different language. It was crude. You didn't do that. So, right off at the start, he's doing something that is culturally remarkable. It, it, there's, there's more remarkable in this. just just this first, first part of this passage. This is a synagogue ruler. He's not maybe a priest, but he's, he's connected religiously with the synagogue. A leader in the synagogue would never kneel before Jesus. Never. And the reason is because Jesus was considered by the religious establishment as a false prophet. And by this time in Christ's ministry here on earth, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. So here you have a, a religious man, a wealthy man. He's run And he's knelt before someone who everybody's trying to kill. It's also remarkable because this rich, young ruler, this rich, young man addresses Jesus as a good teacher. Again, a leader in the synagogue wouldn't have done that. And good in that passage is from Agathos, and it it means internally good, good to the core. This is deep, rooted goodness this is the way down inside you are really good it's also remarkable because this man asks the right question he asks the right question what must I do to inherit eternal life so so he's a a religious leader but as a religious leader he, he knows something's missing There's a part of him that knows there's something not quite right. So does he have an adequate relationship with God to have eternal life? His eagerness and his question about eternal life, is that those are appropriate. Everyone should be doing that. The man wants to inherit eternal life, and inherit it means to grasp hold of. He wants to grasp hold of the God kind of life, eternal life. That's what he wants. So he asks the question, what do I do? And, and Jesus responds with a question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is great. Jesus Jesus goes to this place. He's he's addressing the man's understanding of good. Now, this concept of good actually is very important in this part of this passage. Good. You you know, I look out here and, you know, for the most part, you're good. There's a few of you that... Good in relationship to what? Humans can be good as opposed to bad, but no human can be good like God can be good. God's goodness is his perfect nature. God is good. No human can ever be good like God. You can't do it because you're human. You're not God. He's good. So Jesus takes this this young man to the reality of God's standard of good. What's God's standard of good? He is good. He also has given us a standard of good. And both are unchangeable. So part of what Jesus does is he continues with this whole thing, this, this same idea of kind of defining good. Jesus continues, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man responds, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Great. This man he 's connected to the synagogue, so so he he knows the commandments well, but Jesus has caught him because he doesn't understand their purpose. Remember that the Jews at this time had had twisted the things of God in in some really bizarre ways, and so the Jews attempted to keep the commandments with a motivation. That keeping the commandments would give them a saving relationship with God. It was all about keeping the commandments. If you kept them well, then then God would love you and care for you and, and you'd be his. That's how you'd have a saving relationship with God is if you kept the commandments. But if he had been honest, as we should be honest, the commandments were impossible for humans to keep no one can keep the law it's impossible God had a different purpose for the law the law really was designed to teach people how desperately wicked their lives were that's the purpose of the commandments that's the purpose of the law Paul teaches us this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. And I took this from the NASB because there's one word I really like how the NSAB translates it. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Tutor. To lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. What's God's purpose for the law? To teach us that we desperately need a Savior. The law is a tutor teaching us how completely sinful we are because God's standard is perfect. You may want to wander around your house and say, I am perfect. But it isn't going to work because you're not. And that's what we see in this this unique, this this remarkable story about this young man. This man is certain he has kept the law. So what he's saying is, I have perfectly arrived. I know what God has expected and I've lived that. His self-evaluation tells him that he's done everything to be right with God. But Jesus sees the heart. Jesus sees into this man's heart and he sees into all of our hearts. You can't hide anything from God. He knows your every thought, past, present, and future. That's kind of scary. Jesus knows then exactly what's going on in this man's heart. So Jesus, it says in verse 21, looking at him, loved him. This is just huge. You could preach for a few weeks just on, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Even knowing what's going to happen, even knowing the condition of his heart, Jesus loved this man. And he says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Here's what you do. There's a response. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is remarkable. This is astonishing. Jesus loved this man. There's great compassion, but Jesus also knows the man's heart. And Jesus exposes the man's heart. He's guilty. The Son of God looks into this man's heart, loves him, and knows the condition of his heart. He knows the man is guilty. He knows the man has failed to keep the law. How do we know that? How do we we put that all together? Well, it's evident because of what Jesus asked, that this man, this young ruler, was an idolater because he was worshiping his wealth and possessions. He was unwilling to give them up to follow Jesus. He was just like many of the religious leaders of that day. He viewed prosperity as evidence God was pleased with him. He didn't need to acknowledge that he was a sinner. Because he could say, look at all that I have. God has given that to me. I must not be a sinner. And when the king of the universe says, give it away and follow me, he can't do it. He believed his hard work, his his good works, and all of his wealth would save him. This is so amazing. Here he is. He's face to face with Jesus. Well, he's knelt before him. He's right there with the Savior of the universe. He's, He's right there with Jesus. He's asked the right question. But he chooses the broad road that leads to hell. That road that leads to destruction. He chooses the wrong thing. He doesn't choose the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And what does he do? He, he walks away sorrowful. That is incredible. You're right there with the Savior of the universe, the creator of everything. And you go, no, I don't want that. That's astonishing. And he walks away. Verse 23, Jesus looked around. And he probably sees... The disciples going, what in the world just happened? He knows. Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So so the difficulty that Jesus first goes to is, if you're wealthy, it's difficult to get into the kingdom. The disciples are astonished. Here, Here was... An obviously successful young man. He's a successful religious leader, and he's rejecting Jesus. And Jesus complicates it a little bit more. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed. Whoa! But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So this time instead of just saying if you're wealthy it's difficult he just makes it general it's difficult to come into the kingdom of God. This is remarkable. I mean if if it was my religion I wouldn't tell everybody oh by the way if you're going to follow my religion it's going to be really really nasty hard for you. I wouldn't do that. You want it to make it really easy for everybody. That's not what Jesus is saying, "It's difficult." Jesus not only tells the disciples it's hard for the rich; it's difficult for anyone. He specifically has mentioned the the wealthy, and it's it's because the wealthy it's hard because wealth and prosperity give people a false sense of security. Paul commanded. Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's hard for the wealthy because they are typically consumed with the things of this world. Earthly possessions are their treasures. Wealthy people can enter the kingdom. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is getting at. The wealthy can enter the kingdom if their hearts are consumed with love for Christ and His people, just like the poor. The poor are going to the kingdom the same way. It, it, it's not that God only—he's only, only going to save poor people. That's that's not what He's saying. Let's go back to First to Timothy because Paul continues this, this same line here in, in chapter 6, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Salvation Eternal life, it's dependent upon the condition of the heart. Earlier in chapter 6 of Timothy, Paul warns this way, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is the problem. The Apostle John has the same kind of warning. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. What's Jesus really teaching in this story? He's teaching about the condition of our heart. So you get great riches, you're wealthy. Okay, well, the problem with great riches is it really gives a person a sense of false security because they're confident of their dependency on themselves. There's no desperation. No desperation. And the mind begins to work in such a way that there's no need to be saved. There's no need to be saved from anything. You got it. The rich are often very selfish. They don't like to give anything away. They want to keep what they have for their own pleasure and pride. I was reminded of this in a very real way, in the first church that I was a senior pastor in. Our youth group was doing some of the same things our youth group was doing here. It was busting at the seams, and to go do things, we needed a bus. So. We were peripherally looking for a bus, and God provided a, a really nice bus, really nice bus, sixty-passenger school bus, eight thousand bucks, and it was really a good buy, eight thousand dollars. So we were asking people to give and stuff, and I called somebody who had enough money and enough income between him and his wife; they could have written that eight thousand-dollar check, and it would not have affected their lifestyle one bit. They wouldn't have missed the $8,000. They sent us 50 bucks. God still provided for the bus. What does that say about a heart? Very many times I've seen wealthy people that give to charities, but their giving is not from the heart, and it doesn't affect their lifestyle. So, so we've got this whole idea going on about the wealth in this story, and, and it's hard. I think Jesus is looking at his disciples, and he's still going, eh, there, I, I've got him, man. This is a teaching moment. And Jesus responds with a story, a, a, sa- a statement, verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Whoa, what's that all about? So, in looking at this statement, I went to a whole bunch of different resources. What does he mean? And there are many who have tried to, to make different things out of this. And some of them are trying to, to change its meaning a little bit to soften what it actually means. And some are just wacko. Here's what I mean. I mean, this covers just, it's incredible. So one of the more common things that people will say that Jesus is meaning here is that there was a tiny gate in Jerusalem's wall that maybe humans could walk through, but a camel's going to have a really hard time getting through. And they'd have to use that at certain times. You may have heard that. But the reality, the truth is, no one's ever found any evidence of that kind of a gate. And even if there was... You know, maybe 20 yards down the wall, there's a big gate. So. But there's another extreme here that I read. And I, I still, I look at this and I go, did I really read that? Because it is so bizarre. So somebody actually wrote that what Jesus is meaning is that there's going to be an altering of the molecular structure of the camel so it can actually slip through the eye of a needle. Can anybody say you've lost it? <laughs> <laughs> so on the one hand there's there's n- n- no one has archeologically or historically found any evidence of this tiny gate. And changing the molecular structure of a camel really And and so people are making this so difficult. Can I suggest that we don't go down those paths and just go, this is probably really simple. And it is. What Jesus is doing is using a common Semitic expression that illustrates impossibility. That's what he's doing. He's using a familiar saying to the disciples that means it's impossible. How easy is that? Don't make this into something else. Jesus is using an expression that means impossibility. He's using this kind of expression because his disciples would have understood it and they would have grasped the extent of the problem. It is impossible. For a human on their own strength to enter into the kingdom of God. That's the point. You can't get into the kingdom of God on your own. It's impossible. That's what that means. Well, of course, the disciples hear this and they respond. Verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So, so earlier they were just astonished. You know, just their, you know, your garden variety astonishment. Hey, they were astonished. Here they're exceedingly astonished. And those two words in English come from one word in the Greek that literally means knocking a person out of their senses. So another way I could put it is this made them go crazy. They don't, this is way off the charts. This would have been exceedingly difficult for them. They're not just astonished they're like this you ruined us and their response to jesus is then who can be saved legitimate what you just said is it's impossible so so what in the world are we going to do nobody can be saved you me any human cannot save themselves from eternal hell the sinner the sinner that would be all humans according to Romans 3.23. By his or her own power, money, religious piety or morality cannot save themselves. You can't get it done. That's what Jesus is teaching. A religious system cannot achieve salvation. Highly respected social position or status cannot achieve salvation. Salvation cannot be purchased by any amount of earthly wealth. It is impossible for any human effort to gain eternal life. It's impossible. All humans have sinned and are enemies of God. And it's apparent from Paul's writing in Ephesians that anybody who's outside of Christ is dead anyway. So what are the dead going to do? Without the gracious work of God, no one could be saved. No one can be saved outside of God doing a work. What we have here is the foundational biblical teaching of human depravity. Sinners are totally unable to save themselves. So he's made this statement. He sees his... Jesus makes this statement. He sees his disciples and his disciples, they're whacked. They're... Whoa. So Jesus looks at them and he says... With man, it is impossible. But with God, mm, all things are possible. All things are possible. Salvation. Our salvation is a work of God. It's by His grace. The only part we have in salvation is to believe what God has done through Christ. Every person must make a choice. The young ruler in our story made his choice. And walked away. Walked away from the Savior. That rich young man, he's, he should have all the answers. He's a religious leader, right? He's asking the right question. Salvation was standing right there. He's at the feet. That salvation it's Jesus right there. And he walks away. The Savior of the world, the Savior says, come follow me. There's 12 other men at least right there with Jesus. They're watching this whole thing transpire. And Jesus had also said to them, Come follow me. And they chose to give everything up and follow Jesus. Come follow me. And this guy turns and walks away. Follow me. That really is kind of where the problem really is. In this passage and in other places, "follow me" really means to give up everything and become a disciple. Jesus is saying, "Give it all up and just be mine. Let me be your master." To follow Jesus means everything is less important than the Master. Everything. Is that you? It wasn't the. Excuse me. It wasn't the rich young ruler. Salvation was offered. The choice was made. And he walked away, dejected, sad, disappointed. God has made a perfect plan to save humans. All humans must do is accept their sinfulness and believe in the plan. God's plan so it's his plan and it's man's choice God's plan man's choice working together God had a plan and it was Jesus I wonder sometimes if people are desperate enough to just say I need you Jesus so this whole, this whole thing prompts a reaction from Peter. Why, why should that surprise us, right? You know, every time we've been doing this stuff in Mark, Peter shows up. <laughs> and Peter began to say to him, "See? What have see, We have left everything and followed you." And I hear in this statement, you know, this little bit of, well, we've we've given everything up. The reality is that Peter got it, at least at a certain level. He understood the cost. The cost of following Jesus. He understood what the disciples had given up. He knew what he had given up. Jesus responds to that. Truly I say to you, there is no one Who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel? Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. He pretty much covers everything. Jesus knew what the disciples had given up to follow him. Jesus knows what every believer gives up to follow him. Jesus also knows that the gospel would always be rejected by some and accepted by others. He also knows that there would be animosity because of the gospel. We see this today. We see this today. Years and years ago, there was a young gal in one of our small groups and she came to Christ. She got excited about about Jesus Christ. It's like I was saying earlier, she caught fire. (laughs) Well, she took that fire home. and Her parents gathered all of her stuff up, threw it on the front lawn and locked the door and didn't want anything to do with her. God knows what the cost is. There is a high cost to following Jesus. But there are fabulous rewards, great rewards. Rewards in this life and in the life to come. The reality is if you really want an abundant life here or in the future, if you really want the greatest abundant life possible, you're going to find it in Jesus. Nowhere else. It's in Jesus. God has blessed me by giving me opportunity to travel a lot of places in the world. And I've met some people in India in indescribable poverty. It is extremely difficult for me to paint a word picture for you how poor these people are in this village in India. Most of them have a set of clothing that they're wearing at the time that you're with them. That's all they own. Most of the people in this village have no shoes. They've never had a pair of shoes. Some of them do not have a little thatched hut to live in or a home built out of old cardboard boxes. They don't have it. They have nothing. Their poverty is incredible. It is indescribable, especially if I compare that to our wealth in this country. We are so wealthy And here I've stood in this village and I've met these people and I've talked with these people and I've ministered to these people and they're amazing. They know who they are in Christ. They know what God has prepared for them after this life. They know there is no better life than life with Jesus. And it becomes very obvious that they are gloriously joyful. Just off the charts, joyful. And they are incredibly fruitful. It's amazing. Every time I think about that place, I just go, I am such a sinner. They have nothing. And they are on fire for Jesus. They light it up with nothing. They are rich beyond comparison. So Jesus then ends this story with a a statement. And very often this is just lifted out of this story. But keep this in its context. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. So, what does Jesus mean by that? It's simple. Everybody ends up equal. Everybody ends up equal. Everybody's the same. It's not like we're the same. You know, I'm not going to look like Russ, and Russ isn't going to look like me. It's not that kind of same. I'll still be short. Roy will still be tall. Life in heaven is going to be different because there will not be a struggle in heaven for position. There won't be a struggle in heaven for greater wealth. There won't be one of those contests in heaven to see who has the most toys. There will be no selfish pride. Life in heaven will be totally about God's glory, totally about Him, totally about the awesomeness of the Creator of the universe, totally about our King and our Lord. To inherit this glorious kingdom, a person must be willing to yield to Christ, not like the rich young ruler. You want you want to inherit eternal life? Come follow me. That. Yield to Him. person needs to yield to Christ, and in so doing, and his or her self-confidence, selfish pursuits of idols, and empty pleasures, and put pride to death. And how do we get that all done? If we're believers, we get that done because the Spirit of God resides in us. Because God helps us. He, he's the one who's working in us. It's a win-win for us. Inheriting the kingdom is to lift Christ up as more precious than anything or any person. Are, are you there? Can you say that with, there is nothing more important than Jesus Christ, the King? Is that where you live? If you're willing, if you're willing to answer, Christ is saying, come follow me, give it all up, make him the most important, the greatest in your life. What we saw on Wednesday night were 12 young people who declared their willingness to follow Jesus. They've heard the gospel for weeks and weeks and weeks. They've come to Christ. They understand. And they were publicly declaring, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what was going on here Wednesday. Wow, was it powerful! Wow, was it incredible! That is so amazing. Jesus says, Follow me. And they went, Yeah, let's go do it. And they did it publicly. This place was packed. It was cool. So to finish this morning, I want to show you a video from Wednesday. The audio isn't real great, but I want you to grasp what's happening. Here's 12 kids getting baptized from Wednesday. God is so amazing. Let's pray and then let's go from here on fire. Father, I thank you that you have called us into your kingdom. You've bought and purchased us with the blood of your son. I thank you, Father, for the example we've seen in these young people who have declared they belong to you. Use us everywhere we go, Father. I ask, Father God, that you would continue to speak to us and deepen our desire for you. Nothing else is more important. Thank you, Father, for the work that you've done through your Son. In his name, amen.